0: If you would, please have a seat this morning. We are going to be in Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be uh, starting there in verse 6, which uh, if you look at it, might seem like a strange place to start, but in the Greek, it actually makes a lot more sense. Uh, For those of you who are interested at all in such things, the uh, topic, the title this morning of this particular sermon is Lethal Legalism versus Covenantal Consecration. Now, that obviously bears some amount of explanation uh, that we need to have, but here's one of the things that uh, I wonder if you've ever wondered about, that I think that the passage is going to speak a little bit to this morning, and that is, have you ever wondered how people in the Old Testament, before the coming of Jesus Christ, were saved? How did that relate to uh, the family of God? How did it relate to the law? How were people saved back then? Surveying kind of the landscape of Christian uh, thought and theology, I will tell you that some people, I think, make too much of the differences between the Old and New Testament. It's almost like they bifurcate the Bible into Old and New Testament, and it's almost like they don't really care what came before Christ. They don't really know how to take it, they don't know how to wrestle with it, they don't know how it goes together, how it is unified, and so instead of seeing one redemption story from Genesis to Revelation and then beyond, uh, they make too little of the Old Testament. But, but I also think that uh, others try to minimize the differences, as if there are no differences in the way that God reveals himself in these. I was actually looking down through a list of uh, words, just like, you know, single words like salvation, and the number of times that, it include, uh, that it's included in the Old Testament and New Testament, and even things just like family and stuff like that. There are tremendous differences between the ways that God communicates to us in the Old Testament and New Testament. So while you might make too much of the difference, and kind of you know uh, cut off one entire section of scripture, you also might be tempted to minimize the differences and just think that there are no differences or that they're certainly not significant. Now it seems to me uh, perfectly reasonable to try to understand where those differences exist, but then also how these two testaments to God's mercy are unified how salvation and the law and things like even just God's covenantal people and revelation and sins and authority, how all of those things relate to one another out of these two testaments. Where is God's place? Where is his presence? What is his kingdom? These are the kinds of things that we could try to answer in looking at the Old Testament and the New Testament. And while we can't honestly answer all of those this morning, what I do think that this passage does, and the other passages that kind of inform it, is give us a clear view of what salvation is, what God's family is, and what the law is. So that's kind of what we're going to aim at a little bit this morning, is to try to get a deeper, richer, fuller view of that this morning. So join me here in Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God, and it, was counted to, and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "'In you shall all the nations be blessed.'" So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. So, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So, what is all that about? There's a lot of different things that are kind of mixed and mingled in these things. In fact, if you were to go back and read this this week to kind of study it, I would tell you to pay attention to two kind of root words the first one being curse, and the second one being blessing. This passage is all about the curses and blessing. And what I think we discover here is that Christians cast our curse on Jesus to receive the blessing of a covenantal consecration. Christians cast our curse on Jesus to receive the blessing of covenantal consecration. And here's here's kind of the road map on how we're going to get there this morning. There's a couple of questions that we need to ask. The first one is this why is legalism lethal? Why is legalism lethal? Why is it deadly? The second one is, what is a covenantal consecration? I'm not just using uh, alliteration there, I'm actually trying to get towards something. What is it about uh, covenant and consecration that we see here in this text? And then third, and this is the real payoff, who is the blessing of Abraham? Who is the blessing of Abraham? If you've been with us, we marched through the books of the Bible. Galatians is no different. We've been in the book of Galatians, and what we found right from the get-go in uh, chapter 1, verse 8, is Paul saying this to the Galatians and to us. If anyone should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, the one that he preached, let him be accursed. Do you remember hearing that? It was like harsh words. Paul was really pulling out the big guns and cursing people, cursing teachers that had come by the way and tried to assail the Galatian church with false doctrines. Now, these were not uh, Greeks, they weren't uh, Jews. These were actually people that purported to be Christians. So it wasn't like these were like uh, Greek polytheists or atheists. It wasn't like these were Jews who were kind of clinging on to the Old Testament and didn't believe anything about Jesus. These were Christians, people that at least purported to be Christians that were coming in to the Galatian churches and teaching them that they also needed to follow the law. So, the context for this is that the Galatian churches were being assailed by these Judaizers who claimed to be Christians, and these teachers had bewitched. You remember that word that Paul used? They had bewitched, they had cast a spell, they had cursed the Galatians, verse 3, saying that what had become or begun in the spirit was now being perfected in the flesh. So it wasn't that they were just teaching that, like, there was no such thing as faith. They were coming along and saying, perfectly fine, believe in Jesus, salvation by faith, and also, just one little thing, you need to keep all of the hundreds of rules in the Old Testament as well. So what had begun by the Spirit, they were saying you needed to work out in the flesh. And Paul seemed uh, to be saying that these teachers had really undermined salvation by talking about the way that we are sanctified. That if you come in after salvation and say, thus is how you are sanctified. If you want to become more like Jesus, you have to be doing these things. You have to revert back to this Old Testament law. What Paul was saying is is that they're not just tearing down this life of freedom that you have. They are tearing down the very gospel itself because they're undermining faith. You can't have the freedom without faith. And that's why we've called this uh, series Freed by Faith. So we see that he is so serious. Paul, the writer of this, is so serious that he pronounces a curse on these teachers. And now we see in chapter 3 that the curse gets much more personal to us as well. So the first question in front of us this morning is, why is legalism lethal? You've heard me refer to that a couple of times already. I want to visit these verses that we talked about earlier that have the word curse in them. If you'll go to the second half of these verses, starting in verse 10, we'll find out why legalism is so lethal. And Paul says this, all, not not some, not someone, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Is there any ambiguity there? All does not exclude anything. It's everyone. Everyone who is deciding to put their faith in some way by the works of the law, by using their flesh to mete out their existence and justify themselves, all of them are under a curse Here's one thing that we need to know because we see this word law and sometimes we see it referred to in a very positive way. Other times we see the word uh, law and it almost seems like Paul is really trying to actually uh, tear down something. In fact, he's even mentioned that he was trying to tear down something about the law. How do we understand that? The first thing that you need to know just from study of Scripture is that any time that it refers to works of the law, it's not talking about the law itself. Works of the law are something that are 100% of the time, when Paul uses this phrase, works of the law, he's referring to something negative. But he's not talking specifically about the law. How do do we know that? Well, because we see that the law is talked about in lots of other areas as something very positive. The psalmist says, on your law, I meditate day and night. And it's not like there's like some mixed emotion about it. He's rejoicing in the law. In fact, we also see that it's not just this rejoicing and meditating on the law. We are told that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That there is something actually at work in the law that creates space for revival, regeneration in the soul. So is the law something that is negative? Is it bad? Is it something that we can't pay attention to? Is it something that is in the Old Testament that we don't pay attention to any longer? And the answer is no, unequivocally, no. The law is not bad. In fact, we have Deuteronomy 27, 26 Uh, quoted for us here in these set of verses but it gives us something else to consider about this perfect law that revives the soul it says cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of the law by doing them so the old testament was pronouncing a curse also for people that didn't go about trying to live out a life underneath the law How can we put these things together? How are we to understand them? Is the law bad? Is the law itself a curse? Is the law itself a curse? Does the law place a curse on people? And again, we have to say no. How how can we do that work? Verse 11. Look at what Paul is actually saying here. He's not saying that the law is bad. He's saying that no one is justified before God by the law. Well, why doesn't he just say that legalism is the thing that's lethal? Why does he go about all of this in maybe more cryptic language than he needs to by just referring to it as the law? There's a very practical, simple reason for this. If you ever come across this in Romans, if you come across it in any of uh, Paul's epistles, you can know and understand that when he refers to the law in this way, he's not trying to like, obscure something. They literally didn't have a Greek word that meant legalism. Didn't even have it. So he's trying to explain something that we know as being legalistic. In fact, many of us probably grew up in denominations where we might have uh, really been repulsed by the amount of legalism that was in that faith or those churches. Many of us were actually really harmed, if we can be really honest about it, that there was this just legalistic undertone. It was very judgmental, very hurtful. Paul didn't have the word legalism. So what he is doing is he's saying, listen, no one, no one, not one person is justified before God by works of the law. Nobody can find their salvation out by doing enough good things. Verse 12 says this, the one who does them shall live by them. Now this is an even more fearful thing for us to read. Those looking to be justified by the law will actually be judged by the law. So Paul is saying that they are foolish. These Galatians are foolish. Look at verse 1 in chapter 3. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He's saying that they're foolish because they've exchanged the gospel of free grace for something that lays on top of them a curse. And it's not the law. It's trying to be justified, trying to gain your salvation through doing enough right things. That is a curse. It's a curse because if you uh, try to be justified by them, you will be judged by them. Legalism is a lethal curse. Why? Because it says that I will earn God's pleasure with my morals, my good works, my good deeds, as it were. I will gain God's pleasure by myself. If you want to distill legalism down into one simple statement, it is you are trying to atone for yourself. It's a self-focused endeavor. It pretends like you can do it. And here's the really hard part. Here's where this becomes a real curse and not just something that like Scripture is saying, hey, listen, anybody who's doing this is accursed. We can think about it in our own very personal lives. Why is it a curse? It's because at the very essence of it, it is arrogant, it is prideful, it is self-righteous. When no one is righteous and all have fallen short of the glory of God. It's a curse because God has already told us you can't get there. But, but then even more than that, like even more practice, practically, it's a curse because it puts you in this endless cycle of legalism, of this self-atonement. Pay attention to this, this endless cycle of like, self-reliance in the face of constant failure. Here's why legalism can be a curse. It's because you've either got to do one of two things if you're trying to earn your salvation by works of the law. You have to, one, lie to yourself, or you have to lie to God. You can do both, but you can't, do, you can't be without either one. What, what do I mean by that? Because at some level, you've got to have like, a daily like, confrontation of your total and complete inadequacy, and more often than that, complete and total utter failure. So, so in legalism, you have to sit there and submit yourself to an endless process of justifying yourself and constantly be confronted by the fact that you suck. I mean, that is a curse. So, you gotta lie to yourself. You gotta lie to yourself. If you're gonna put yourself in that cycle, you have to like uh, dull your spirit. You have, to, uh, you have to blunt all of your convictions and say, no, I'm doing it pretty good. I know I see my failure over there, but I'm not as bad as that person. You've got to lie to yourself. Or you've got to lie to God. <clears throat> you've got to pretend like he doesn't hear your innermost thoughts or see the wickedness from your past, or feel in some way your rebellion against him. you got to pretend. you got to lie to him. you got to go, God, I'm pretty good. And you got to think at some level that you're going to get away with it, like he doesn't see you. It's terrifying. It's a curse. It's not just something that Paul says is a curse. Isn't it, if we're being honest with ourselves, something that we can feel is a curse? Has anybody been just trying their hardest to earn God's favor, not over the course of months, weeks, but over the course of like decades? And you just, you're exhausted by it? What occurs? Romans 3.19 says this, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God that works of the law, but by works of the law, no one is justified. So it's not just here in Galatians, it's also in Romans. And here's the scariest part. Here's back to uh, Galatians. The scariest part for me is cursed be Everyone who does not abide by all things and then do them. If you're trying to be justified by the law, you better be getting it perfect. Man, that's frightening. But it does, if we can be honest, create like a longing, a need. It creates something in our soul that like cries out, let it not be that we are justified by good works. Let it not be that we are justified by the law because I can't do it. What is that need? And that's the second question this morning. What is covenantal consecration? In light of this curse, in the light of that curse, what is our greatest need? Our greatest need is consecration. Now, consecration is a strange word. You don't hear it very often. I'm using it this morning partially because it's something that we're familiar with. It's something that we can still kind of understand. But it's not something that we use like every single day. What is consecration? It needs to be defined. It's to make or to declare something holy or sacred. So if you look at a life of legalism and the curse that it leaves you underneath, it creates a need and a desire for being holy and being righteous apart from works of the law we must be consecrated. Verse 6 says this, this is such good news, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you know the story of Abram before he was Abraham? Do you know the story? This was a guy who, uh, who knew in some sense God. We're not sure precisely how, He had this uh, unique relationship that he was able to uh, 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 speak with God. God was uh, able to come to him, commune with him at these different times. And Abram has this moment where God shows up in the midst of his old age. After they had had no children, he and his wife Sarai. And he says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you, look up at the stars. You see how many of them there are? You're going to have more children than that that's a pretty big promise. And what happens is that Abram believes God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This big promise that God made to him, that he was going to bless all of the nations of the earth through his family, he was going to give them this big family, and what does he do with that? Does he scoff at it? It Amidst a lot of failure, on Abram's part, he believes God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was, he was consecrated. He was given righteousness. Abraham didn't keep every law, and yet he was consecrated by God. He was made righteous by God. That, that gives us hope. That gives us hope that for those who are under the curse of the law, no matter how far you fall short of God's right standards, Abraham received this message of grace. And here's why it's hopeful to us. This wasn't something that happened in the New Testament. This wasn't even something that happened like immediately after Jesus came to earth. This happened hundreds of years before Jesus. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What hope there is that he is given righteousness. He receives this grace, not in the New Testament, but the old. In Genesis chapter 15, we see that God makes a covenant family and gives him a covenant place. God makes these outrageous and big promises to Abraham, and Abraham believes God, and it was credited. It was just given to him. He received grace from God through faith by believing. When? In the Old Testament. When the law was still around? Well, yeah, when, when God's perfect moral standard of righteousness was there, God was ushering out on a red carpet, a silver platter, grace for a man named Abraham. Where? In Jerusalem? Is that, is that where he gives? Is that the only place? Is it just through Abraham that he's giving this kind of righteousness? Is it only two Abraham, that he gives this kind of righteousness, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. This is not a genetic, it's not a tribal thing, it's not something that you inherit through your father. Uh, My daughter was asking me the other day when we were talking about baptism "Dad, I want to be baptized and I said hey you know why do you want to be baptized and she had lots of really good reasons but one of the things and I don't want to I don't want to uh, downplay this at all one of the one of the things that she said to me is like we're we're a Christian family you're you're a Christian mom's a Christian uh, here are our grandparents that are Christians like she she in some ways associated salvation and baptism and faith with family and she's right but it's not genetic it's not physical it's not something that comes by my line here's the good news there is a line of faith there is a family of faith father abraham truly does have many sons And many sons have father Abraham. Now here, let's be honest about this. We we can say that out loud and we just kind of feel removed from it. There are very few of us in this room that have any kind of like genetic link to the Jewish people. Uh, maybe even fewer of us, like in Fort Worth, Texas, have, you know, relationships with. But here's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that that kind of inheritance is not something that you have to have by inheriting it from a earthly, physical father. Here's the crazy news about God's family. You can be an African black Muslim and be a son of abraham you can you can be a, a russian you know out on the siberian plain and be a son of abraham you can be an anti-semitic redneck jew hater person that is like recreated in your heart through the love of christ and you even that previous jew hating person can become A son of who? Abraham. This is not a physical lineage, but a spiritual one that we are ushered into by faith. Verse 8. For seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel saying this, This is is Paul saying that this is what God did to Abraham those many years ago. He preached the gospel. Foreseeing that God would justify Gentiles by faith, he preached the gospel saying this, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Every nation. So there's lots of people that think in this dispensational mindset that like Abraham had uh, two children. And that there were two nations that were born out of uh, his uh, son, Isaac and Ishmael, through Jacob and Esau. And you have these two nations. But here, we see that Paul says that there are people that are blessed in every nation. There's a multitude of nations. It's not two. You have to have more than two to have a multitude. Can we agree on that? Every nation on, on earth is going to be blessed through this covenant that He's making with Abraham, and it's a covenant that is ushered in to, and that is uh, joined in by faith. And this is modeled in Matthew twenty-eight when Jesus is commissioning His disciples and saying, "That go therefore and make disciples of two nations, no, all nations." It's at the heart of the gospel. Verse 9. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. But how? How are we blessed by that? How did God consecrate? Was it by water? There, there are some, you know, some religions that you consecrate, you make things holy by uh, dipping them in water, by washing them off. There are purity laws even in the Old Testament that you consecrate things by water. There are other times where you consecrate things by fire. You put them into the fire and they become pure, or you burn incense and it becomes pure. In the Old Testament, we see this very strange thing that the utensils of the priests use are consecrated not by water, not by fire, but by blood. By, by sprinkling the sacrifice, the blood of sacrifices on them, it makes them consecrated, it makes them holy. And this is precisely what we see here in verse 13. "Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Jesus. The only one who had never broken a single law was put under the curse of judgment of the law. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Here's what you need to hear this morning. How are you consecrated? How is it possible that you can be uh, entered into in this grace? How is that reservoir, that deep and abiding ocean of God's grace, how is it bought out? It's bought by Jesus. And instead of you being under the curse of the law, you cast your curse on Jesus. You give it to him in the midst of the curse of the cross. And he takes that curse and he dies for it. He becomes the curse. For who? For all that would believe. Every son and daughter of Abraham, every son and daughter of God the Father is consecrated. They're made holy. They have a covenantal, binding, unbreakable covenant of love and grace that's been made with them there on that cruel, cursed cross. That's how he did it. Christians cast our curse on Jesus to receive by faith the blessing of covenantal consecration. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that, so that, I'm saying that twice because that's what the scripture says. If you look down at verses 13 and 14, he became a curse for us so that, so that, two things, okay, and in these two things we're going to discover who is the blessing of Abraham. Who is the blessing of Abraham? Who gets the blessing of Abraham? Who is the blessing of Abraham so that, okay, so that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles? Who is the blessing of Abraham? So that Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles. It's a little cryptic. Can we, can we agree? It's like, okay, I don't, I don't see it. I don't get it. I don't know or understand, like, who, who is it that is the blessing of Abraham? What I want to do, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to read this over us so that we can get some sense of it. I'm going to Romans chapter 4. It says this. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? Remember, that was one of the questions that we were asking earlier. Do you have to do the works of the law? The work of the law is circumcision. So is this grace only available for those who have been circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So if you, you're getting like this uh, argument that has to do with a timeline, the question is did Abraham have to be circumcised in order to receive the grace, in order to receive the righteousness? He says, no, 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 no. it wasn't after he did this, it was before Abraham believed, and then it was counted to him as righteousness. Then he followed God's direction for him out of a a clean and righteous and pure, excited heart, although it's hard to imagine, right, in that particular instance. Let's keep on reading. The purpose was to make him a father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. That them, that's you. You get that? It's not like some other... like That's you. This faith is being counted to you as righteousness. It's not just Abraham, and you're being brought into his family. Righteousness was counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the uncircumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but also walk in the footsteps of faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise of Abraham and his offspring was that they would be an heir to the world, not just to a small little piece of uh, the Middle East, but to the entire world. And that did not come through the law, but through righteousness of faith. For it is the adherents of the law, who are, being, who are uh, to be the heirs. Faith. Faith then, in that instance, would be null. The promise would be void. For the law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. So here, here's the question that I want to get back to. The question I want to ask one more time is this, who is the blessing of Abraham? Who is it? You are. You're actually included in this amazing blessing. You're a child of Abraham. You get the blessing and you are the blessing to the Father. You see, I want for this to become powerful in some way for you. I want you to think about this man, Abraham, not as a felt board, you know, guy that kind of existed as a figment of imagination. No, no, no. The God of this universe actually spoke to this man and said, I will make you the father of many nations. I'm going to bless all this world through your offspring. And who is he talking about? He's talking about you. He wasn't talking about this group of people there in the Middle East. He was talking about you. What an amazing, miraculous promise we are actually seeing fulfilled. You are the result. If you are in Christ, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, you are an overflow of this promise that is now millennia old. Made to this man who is a father in faith. Not to just a genetic people group, but to us today. It also says this. It says, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So if we're asking this question, who is the blessing of Abraham? The first answer is, we are. And that's an amazing truth. You want to know one better? You want to know an even better, more amazing, more glorious promise that we see here? Who is the blessing of Abraham? Right there in verse 14, God is. He, look, the Spirit, through faith, the blessing of Abraham is that he got God. He, he actually received it. Like, we think of the Old Testament, and we don't think of the Holy Spirit. But we do hear sometimes these uh, you know, uh, individual times where it's like, man, I, is he talking about the Holy Spirit? I was pretty sure that the Holy Spirit was maybe in the Ark or maybe in the Holy of Holies. It wasn't in people, right? But we see the psalmist David saying, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And here we see that the promise to Abraham was actually the Spirit. It was the Spirit of God in a way that in all honesty, is totally and completely mysterious to me. Abraham, the blessing of Abraham was that he got God. The Father promised Abraham that he would bless every nation through him. And Jesus brings that blessing of Holy Spirit to, in this verse, to Abraham. Jesus brings the Holy Spirit to Abraham, and we get the sense that we get to enjoy that too. As sons of Abraham, as daughters of Abraham, as children of faith, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as children of God the Father, we actually get God. The good news of the gospel is not only, it's not only that we are the fulfillment of promises made long ago to this father of faith, it's also that we get God too. What an amazing covenantal consecration and blessing that he pours out on his people. I'm going to finish by quickly applying some of this. If you're wondering, man, all of this sounds like really joyous, really amazing. Maybe the first part of it did, but it's just been easy to kind of trail off because honestly, it's a really dense text. And so somewhere along the way, you started thinking about what's going on at the uh, office tomorrow. If you've been starting to think about like, where you've got to get your kids off to uh, lunch today. If you've, if you've been thinking, if it's been interrupted, how does this apply to you today? I want to quickly apply this. What have we learned about the relationship between the Old Testament and New Testament in this text? What have we learned about salvation? What have we learned about God's people? What have we learned about the law? The first thing that we've learned is that there is one covenant of grace. Okay, so you might think of Scripture as an Old and New Testament You might think of the Davidic covenant, you might think of like the promises that were made to Noah, you might think of the Abrahamic covenant, you might think of the Mosaic covenant, you might be thinking about all of these covenants, but here's what you need to know. You need to know that there was one covenant of grace from the very beginning. What does that tell us? That says that salvation for Abraham in the Old Testament was by grace through faith. That salvation for the Galatians was by grace through faith. That, that your salvation was by grace through faith. Why? Because all of the covenants in all of the scriptures point to one way that God is saving and redeeming a people. So, so here's what I don't want you to hear. I don't want you to hear that there's not like context for these other like covenants that are made or that there isn't a lot of study, that there isn't a lot of nuance, that there isn't a lot of stuff that you can hold. Maybe, maybe you're thinking uh, just the theological people in this room are going like, hey, there were a lot more covenants than just one. What I want you to hear this morning is that the salvific covenant is one of grace and it always has been that way. God made a covenant of grace. That's been available from the fall until this very moment, until Jesus rides in on a white horse, there is a covenant of grace that is available for you. The second thing that we learn is that access to this grace is made through the door of faith. Access to that grace by Abraham was through faith. Access to the grace for these Galatians was made through what? Faith. Access to this grace for you this morning, here, now, today, is the same as it ever was. It's through the door of faith. There is no other door. And if there is no other door, then there is no other door now. If there there never has been another door, there's no other door now. You can't earn your way to God. Trusting in the law is deadly. And that's what we learned third. We learned that there is this Uh, family of faith that God has brought about in his covenant people. And it includes people from every nation. And it's mysterious. It's mysterious, right? That God would just choose this one man from earth and choose to make him into a people. It's interesting, if we can be honest, it's interesting that that people still exist today. And that many of them have like I mean you can do the 23andMe and they just have like I mean they are genetically Jewish, like they can track it back, 100 percent, for generations. It's interesting that that people still exists. That God chose Abraham to be a father, the father to Isaac, a father to Jacob, a father to these uh, 12 tribes. So the question for many is like, why do they still exist? Is there still a plan for the Jewish people? And here's my answer to that. I have no idea. And I would tell you, be careful to anybody that you hear that seems pretty certain that God has some specific kind of plan. Why? Because he's made a covenant of grace for people from every nation, and in the passages in Scripture that people build these, like, you know, uh, eschatological, like, end times views of the Jewish people. You know what? To me, it kind of seems like when I read it, man, maybe God does have, like, this cool plan for, like, ethnic Jews, like, at the end times. I don't know. I don't think that very many people do. What I do know is that he has a plan for us for all of time, for the redemption of people from every nation. And here we discover that anyone can be a child of Abraham. Anyone can be a receiver of the Holy Spirit through faith. Finally, we learn that the law is not a curse. The law is not a curse. If you've heard something that has made you think that the law is bad, it's evil, it's not a curse. The law is It's not a curse, nor does the law curse, but legalism does bring a curse. Trying to be justified by the law brings a curse. Therefore, obeying the law and the commandments of Christ can be a lively delight. It can be a joy to your soul, or it can be a curse. It can be uh, this thing that you're trying to earn salvation, and it just leaves this grotesque taste of death in your mouth. It it can be an oppressive yoke of slavery crushing your very bones. That's our relationship to the law now. Do, Do you understand? You cannot be justified by the law. You can be enslaved by it. You can be joyful doers of God's moral law. You can't do both. Do not trust in God's law to bring about your salvation. I plead with you not to be bewitched by Judaizers. In fact, I'll, I'll go one step farther for the people of City Church. I want you to know that I want you to not stand for one moment for teachers who try to put that legalistic effort on you, for those who try to saddle you and bridle you and hit you to unmovable stones of the law. Works of the law and the power of the flesh cannot save you. And if you hear a teacher tell you that they can, I want you to curse them, just like Paul did. Okay? Do not stand for legalism. Likewise, do not stand for the whispers of your legalistic heart when it tries to convince you that you can earn God's favor. Works of the law cannot save you. You cannot complete in the flesh what began in the Spirit. So I just charge you this morning, Choose for yourself. You can choose cursing. You can choose that lethal legalism. Or you can choose blessing, the blessing of covenantal consecration. Enter God's forever family of faithful favor. Enter his garden of glorious grace through faith and no other thing. Pray with me. God and Father, our prayer this morning is very simple. Lord, would you help us to be and enjoy grace as objects of your mercy and love? Lord, we ask you that you would let our hearts take hold of grace through faith. Lord, we ask you that we would not quickly eschew the law. We know that you have spoken to us about the way that life works best, Lord, we know that you have uh, said that doers of the law uh, will find blessing in them. And Lord, we see it in our very lives. Lord, we know that if we honor our fathers and mothers, that there are good promises there for us. Lord, that if we don't lie and cheat and steal, Lord, that you will bless us. We know that your law is good. We know that it is holy. We know that it is righteous. We know that it points us towards a revival of our souls. But Lord, it is an inglorious and terrible taskmaster. And Lord, every one of us in this room has parts of our hearts that believe that if we can put just enough time in between uh, our failures and our sins, if we can uh, just manage to uh, um, beat lust or um, uh, bridle our mouths, Lord, that somehow you will be more favorable to us. But Lord, that is just a damned lie. Lord, would you teach our hearts that? And would you teach us to glory in your grace through faith. Lord, I pray your strong blessing on this people in the name of Jesus. Amen.